This is Self Startup. Welcome to Self Startup, Season 2. This is a podcast that highlights the small business owners, the self-employed and freelancers who have taken the plunge to create their own desirable lifestyle. My name is Andy Dowling. I'm also the host of the Andy Social Podcast and play bass in the Australian metal band Lord. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching at Andy Dowling, or you can go to selfstarter.com.au where you can learn more about me as well as everything to do with the self-employment world. This episode is with Aaron Edwards, the owner of Bitter Few, which is a craft beer bar located in Darlinghurst, Sydney. Beer enthusiasts from far and wide have congregated to the 1920s New York warehouse-inspired venue where 12 taps constantly rotate and showcase some of the finest local and international boutique beers. It could be argued that craft beer and bars in general are a dime a dozen these days. It's definitely not a bad thing, but when you're looking at potential business ideas, many people often get trapped in the originality of a business rather than how you can make an existing service and experience better than the rest. Bitterfew is a prime example that shows that you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but instead just make it unique and exciting for the potential customer. Now, Aaron is no stranger to event management and establishing venues. This is the man behind Doris and Beryl's Cocktail Bar in Newtown and Creek and Cheller in Leichhardt. He's cut his teeth over the years in the hospitality world, learning the ins and outs of what makes a great venue and ensures that people continue to come back. With Bitter Few in full swing and having a roaring success, Aaron has set his eyes on his latest venture called Few, a wine and cocktail bar which is an extension of the Bitter Few branding. In our chat, Aaron talks about having to take a step backwards in order to move forward and explains that he always needs to go back to basics when commencing a new business or venture. Bitterfuse success has come from a conscious, organic approach where word of mouth and exclusivity has encouraged enthusiasm and loyalty amongst his visitors. Mainstream marketing does not fit in with the branding, and as such, the focused grassroots approach has done the business massive favours. Aaron also talks about the financial disciplines that he applies to his ventures, his background in the self-employment world, and collaboration ideas where business-to-business opportunities can help mutual growth. To learn more about Aaron Edwards, Bitterfew, and the multitude of venues that he's had involvement with over the years, check out the show notes over at selfstarter.com.au. But for now, please enjoy this great chat with Aaron Edwards of Bitterfew. My name's Aaron. Uh, I currently have three hospitality venues. Um, generally speaking, they're specialty venues, so they kind of focus on a particular type of product or um, or part of the industry, if you want to call it that. And so the 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 business that I sort of got, uh, I guess, caught a whim of of is um, bit of few. But you mentioned yep. you got three. Three locate is it three locations all under the same name or have you got three separate sort of businesses no. that are under an, an umbrella? No, so they're well, they're I suppose I am the umbrella, but um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, but they're kind of that yeah. So it's the same sort of maybe a better way of describing it is the concept is the same, but the physical offering is slightly different. So bit of few, which is what most people know me for, is a craft beer venue, um, and we specialise in craft beer, um, and we're known for that throughout the country kind of thing um, as that's what we do. Um, the second venue is more of a um, wine-focused venue and that's focused on um, local Australian natural and organic wines. 
uh, with cheese and charcuterie. Uh, and then the third venue, which is why I'm so busy at the moment, is uh, just opening in, well, opened about two weeks ago. So, um, and that's essentially attached to Bit of Few, um, but it's offering a slightly different, like an alternative, if you want to call that. So it's more focused on wine and cocktails um, and a food offering as well. So, yeah, you can, you're definitely busy. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I mean, how long, how long has um, this been going on for? Uh, it probably kicked off about six years ago. It's probably the most accurate um, timeline. I mean, it's always hard to say when it actually started, but the physical construction probably started about six years ago. Going back, you know, approximately six years ago, what, what were you doing beforehand? Were you always sort of, did you always have sort of your foot in the self-employment world or did you, so were you doing some traditional work and you decided to make that change? What, what did that look like at the time? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a slight mix of cliche and completely left field. So, <laughs> um, so my, my father was self-employed, um, you know, as long as I've known him, so to speak. Um, and I think that's probably fed through on some level. Like I think, you know, it's one of those things that whatever your parents do, you probably get something out of it, whether it's, you know, it's that thing when you, when, um, when you have friends at school and their teachers, the parent, uh, their, the teachers is one of the parents of the kids and, you know, you're like, oh, I'd never be a, a teacher or whatever. And then the kids become teachers as well. And you're like, what the hell? How did that happen? Kind of thing. <laughs> so I think on, yeah, so I think on some level, I definitely, I didn't enjoy the idea of um, a, a, a physically constructed day. Um, I mean, I definitely had a crack at working in offices and I had a, a, you know, working for other people. And I think the more people I worked with that were self employed or were a little bit more fluid with how they operated, I became more and more attracted to it. So I was probably the biggest trigger for me was um, I was actually in Japan working for a guy um, who essentially built his own restaurant and bar and I helped him build it. So, you know, I kind of had weirdly a very first world experience on how to do it without realizing that's what I was doing. And then I came back to Australia and didn't really understand what the correlation was. You don't just kind of like come back and go, oh yeah, I'm going to open a bar. Like it's not a, it's not like A plus B equals C. Um, so I kind of like fished around a bit and I, a similar kind of job or study kept popping up and it was interior design. It's like I, enjoy, I enjoyed the constructing of the, the space. I enjoyed the construction of the concept and I enjoyed conceptualizing what people would get out of the space. Um, and then that kind of attracted me to study. So I did that for a few years and then obviously in the process of studying, you're working in something else, i.e. hospitality. So I was kind of like self-fulfilling my, you know, my supposed destiny by doing the very thing that I didn't realize I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, you know, like I, yeah, like there's only so many jobs you can do while you're studying. So you, you are limited by that. Um, So in, in, in essence, it, um, yeah, it kind of forced me into that anyway. So, yeah, I was going to say, you know, obviously having tastes of different things along the way and, and then having sort of, as you mentioned, your father sort of probably subconsciously over the years is just probably drilling in some some assurances from a self-employment point of view or at least you having the transparency mm. of understanding how, how that world can work. It sort of all yeah. eventually fell into place. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't think there's like... Yeah. You know, maybe in ten years when we when we have another interview, um, <laughs> we'll look back and we'll be like, "Look how look how obvious my life unfolded." But I, I think on a, on a, on a year on year basis, like I look back and I'm like, "There's definitely a definitive 
like moments that made me turn right and turn left. But I don't think it was like a specific plan or it was a direct correlation between anything hyper specific. It was kind of like an accumulation of many tiny things. And then I think once you get to a certain point where you've accumulated all those tiny things, you kind of have to, you kind of have to translate that into something. Like I, I still remember getting to, uh, I, I guess it was about 30 and, um, and I still, I kind of sat myself down and said, well, what's going on? You can't just keep studying and you can't just keep doing this. Like you're obviously enjoying what you're studying. Um, but you want freedom and there wasn't really, it wasn't really in the interior design or architecture. It's not really a version of that. Um, not for a very long time anyway. Like you kind of have to do the hard yards. You've got to do five to 10 years before you can go off and do your own thing. Mm. Um, and I think that probably scared me out of it a little bit. I was just like, I don't think I can wait another five years before I get to do what I actually want to do. Um, so yeah, so I think that was probably ironically the, the, the trigger and it just happened to be an accumulation of all those other things that we just talked about that led me to be able to make that decision. And, I mean, on the topic of, say, craft beer, I mean, going back, you know, approximately six years ago, you would have, I'm assuming, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm definitely not as uh, in the world as you are, but I would assume that you probably were fairly early into that big wave of um, of attention around craft beer in Australia. So was there was there something, as you mentioned before, like a lot of little things that sort of add up to a point where you make, start making decisions yourself, but could you see that, you know, this concept that was starting to sort of accumulate was going to make sense and there was an opportunity to be had, especially when it came to the topic of craft beer? Yeah, no, like absolutely. And I the thing is, um, once again, easy to say this in hindsight, but um, I don't think I went in with the idea of opening, in inverted commas, you know, the best bar, best beer bar in the country. I think it was, I was literally coming on cross from the concept of what we just talked about, i.e. I wanted to work myself. I wanted to design spaces. I wanted to create concepts. Um, and then I kind of like, I guess craft beer was the vehicle. Um, I mean, in saying that though, like, I always, you know, drank Coopers and I always drank, you know, whatever the new beer was back when craft beer wasn't a thing, mm. even when I was much younger, um, not realizing what I was doing. I just, I, I think I was always after something different and I guess craft beer just kind of um, fed me the um, fed me the information I needed. So, yeah, I mean, at the time, like once again, it's easy to say it now, but at the time, like, um, you know, you could probably name every person in Sydney that was drinking craft beer. Like it was kind of, it was a, it was small. Like it was small. Most of the venues that were offering craft beer at the time were location-based venues that you know, um, like say for example the Tap House, mm. which is a funny location specifically, but it's on the path of going towards more Park. So they, in my opinion, they were making a lot of their money not from being a craft beer venue, they're making their money from people going to a Sydney Swans game or going to a football match. You know, mm. they would they would have those crowds. Like, I'm sure if they, yeah, exactly. Like, I'm sure if they turned off the taps tomorrow and put on different taps, they would probably still be busy on some level. Like, may not be the same busy, but they'd be busy on a different level. Like, we were the, um, I guess, I mean, there's probably some venues. It's hard to say because a lot of venues opened about six years ago, so it depends on who was first and all. Like, I'm not claiming first. That's definitely not what I'm saying. Um, but it was probably about, you know, about six years ago, there was definitely a bit of a movement and we were one of the first, um, 
beer concepts, which is purely based on craft beer, nothing else, no other leverage, no other um, hand or leg up, whatever you want to call it. We were 100% independent. We didn't have any contracts. Um, we're all off on our own back, which allowed us to make decisions and you know be more fluid with business. Um, but yes, I mean, like, yeah, like at the time it didn't feel like it, but you know, as the as the day one ticked over to um, day three hundred and sixty five, and I looked back and I was like, wow, we are so much further ahead um, in the movement than I realised. So. Yeah, I don't think it was like an educated, like when I say educated, I don't think it was an, a, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't think it was a, like a strategy per se. It was like, it was definitely looking at what I wanted and what would I feel comfortable selling day in and day out without feeling like I was selling my soul of some description or, um, yeah, so I, I look at more as a vehicle as opposed to a, a definitive like, I think some people who are in the craft beer world, they go in with this idea of like, I'm going to open a craft beer venue. And then they, the realities of running a venue uh, compared to just being a passionate beer lover are two completely different things. Mm. Um, and no different to say, um, uh, I don't know, like maybe someone who appreciates photography and they think they can be a good photographer. Like we can all take a good photo, but it doesn't make you're a good photographer. So Absolutely. Um, Yes, and I think that the industry, like no different to any other industry, I'm sure it's littered with people like that as well. I, I suppose I went in with a more of a professional attitude where I wasn't just going to open a beer bar, I was going to open the best beer bar based on me wanting to be professional about it. Well, that was going to be one of the questions um, I was going to ask because, uh, you know, even putting craft beer aside, which, you know, over the years afterwards really sort of, you know, ramped up and there's a lot of competition out there these days, but mm. even just opening a bar in general can be quite a, quite a big thing to take on. There's a lot of competition out there. So in that first 12 months and even sort of leading to where you are now, I mean, what sort of things did you do to try and, I guess, separate yourself from the pack or to try and do something that is a point of difference that brings people in and, and it's got you to the reputation that you have now? Was there a sort of you know, I know you mentioned you didn't sort of have the strategy in place, but you obviously had this intention that you're going to go in there and create, you know, that, that best beer bar possible. But what sort of things did you do to sort of build that up to that point? Um, oh, there's a few things. I mean, some of them are really boring, but then like necessary. <laughs> yeah. Um, one is, uh, I mean, there's definitely some obvious things that you kind of should and shouldn't do and all that kind of stuff. But um, I definitely didn't like, I'm not, I'm not definitely not claiming I'm perfect, but as things unfolded, I realized that most of the decisions I made were right. Um, and one was based on the physical space. Um, I needed it to appear as exclusive as possible. So to be exclusive, that means I had to kind of reject all forms of mainstream marketing. Mm. Um, I had to rely heavily on word of mouth, um, which is a slow process. Um, which kind of leads me into my next thing. So you've got to keep your, your expenses tight. Like uh, I see, and you know, and I've done it myself. It's not, it's not exclude. I'm not immune to it where you get to a point where you think you've got all this money to open a venue and then something blows out or something um, stops you from doing something that you thought you could do or whatever it is, but you haven't factored it in. But a lot of venues just purely rely on marketing. They think as long as I open a venue and I market, everything will be okay. Mm. Um, and then six months later, they're quiet and they wonder why they're so quiet. And it's just like, well, you, you didn't do that, that hard part at the start where you actually got to understand 
A, how people interact with you and your space, and B, um, your your connection to the customer is lost because they just they, they very quickly just turn into a number because you are busy for maybe six weeks and then that's it. Um, whereas like I knew all my customers' names um, in the first kind of three months and that obviously made a big impact. So repeat customers are massive um, part to that. Um, but in saying that, that's not exclusively the only way. I think like, you know, on some level I look back and I'm like, if I marketed a little bit, that might have helped us out with some of the, you know, the dips and things like that. Um, but I mean, I look at the business now and it's like we open every week and it's within reason, it's like it's the same amount every week. Doesn't matter what we do, it's the same amount every week. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the kind of stage you want to get to. You don't want to, you don't want to have a business that um, one month you're doing X and the next month you're doing Y. Like it's a really hard way to live when you don't know how much money is coming in every week. Yeah. I mean, you don't you don't want to run any business, let alone a job. But imagine having a job where your salary is dependent on, on how successful the company was each week. I mean, you'd be you'd be constantly on edge all the time. Absolutely. Um, I was logical about understanding that it is still a business and it still needs to do things. It can't just be like open the doors and people will rush in um, as long as I've got good beer on tap. Like there was heaps of little tiny things that I built into the business to make it um, sustainable, um, whether that was from you know, small events to kind of get different, like even just focusing on different product offerings to get a different type of customer in. And then eventually over time you build up your breakfast customer. But I mean, maybe more to the question, how am I different to other similar sized venues as opposed to beer venues? Um, I just try and do the opposite of what, when I say opposite, I mean in a positive way, the opposite to what a lot of other venues do. And that is just connect with the customer. I find a lot of venues are hyper focused on just making targets um, and, um, you know, hitting that Friday, Saturday target. Whereas I kind of looked at it and went, I want to break even on uh, my non-Friday and Saturday. That way, if anything goes wrong, I'll always be at least safe. Mm. Um, and that kind of links in with that customer thing. It's like, so by focusing on your, you know, your non-weekend crowd, um, technically it means you're able to connect with the customers better. You're able to get direct feedback. And as long as you're agile and you're not too sort of, you know, you don't get your ego in any sort of kind of not and you're able to take on feedback uh, proactively and you're able to sort through what is accurate accurate feedback and what's just someone's opinion. I think there's no way that you can kind of, in inverted commas, fail. But the second you stop that kind of cycle, then, you, you know, not to say that you'll fail, but you kind of, you're kind of setting yourself up a little bit. Um, for, well, I suppose for turbulence, maybe not failure, but turbulence. Um, so, I mean, I definitely touch base, even now I still touch base with some of my customers from, you know, they're still regulars now. So I touch base with them every now and then. But in saying that, they're also got a skewed perspective now because they want the bar to be quiet. They want it to be <laughs> all theirs. So, you know, you've got to be like, yeah. So, you know. So I guess you've probably gone through this a couple of times now, given that you've got you know, these three venues that, um, that you're running. But I guess... When you first started, um, you know, when it comes to money and things like that, and it's not so much about digging into the, the dollars and cents about it, but I guess from a financial point of view and the approach that you take, what were some of the things that you had to do to sort of safeguard yourself um, where, you know, for a lot of people, your yeah, everyday Joe would look at it as, as a significant financial risk to open your own business. And for you, 
you're going through this a third time now as far as you know yeah. expanding or, well, or yeah. adding, adding additional uh, yeah. things to you, to your repertoire i mean what sort of things have you have you sort of learned or you've done along the way that have sort of i guess protected you as best as you can yeah um technically it's actually the fourth one but i sold one a couple of years ago but anyway that's a, that's another story but um i think that i think the probability the first and simplest one is how long are you prepared to work for free for mm. like that's the i think that's the simplest one um and look, I don't think there's a right answer for that. I think everyone, everyone's got their own uh, version of what uh, free is, if you want to call it. Yeah. Um, like there's, there is that argument where, and it is, you know, written in textbooks, so to speak, where, you know, always pay yourself and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like that's what I, when I, when I studied business, you know, however long ago it was, um, that was one of the first things that you should always pay yourself first and all this sort of stuff. I'm like, the reality is that's not possible. Like, I don't think at any point I've ever paid myself first in this whole process. I'm not saying I don't get paid, but I'm just saying I've never paid myself first. Um, and I think as soon as you develop an attitude of paying yourself first, you start to other other little cracks start to appear. And I think mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, as long as I'm getting paid, then I won't pay that. And I, as long as I'm getting paid, then you know I won't pay that person. Or you know, like it starts to develop a bit of an attitude. I think possibly, possibly. Um, whereas if you know that you're getting paid last, you know that the, the onus falls on you as in like, if the business does fail or if, um, you know, or if things are a bit tight one week, you know, you, you know, like, you know what you're up against. It's not like it's this shock when it happens or anything like that. So I think like maybe your my first point is psychologically prepare yourself to work for free for time X. I don't know what that time is. It could be. You know, one year, it could be six months, it could be three months. Every business is obviously different. Um, I mean, I think I worked for free, not to be specific. It's always debatable what you call free. Mm. Um, I kind of write off about three months on average per venue. Um, and that's hard to gauge because some of them are four months, some of them are five months, some of them are one month, some are, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just, let's call it an average of three months. And that's not specific, that's just a... Um, and then I think the next thing is, um, well, one of the things I've done, and I think it's, it links in with the psychology of it as well, I think, is have like three separate accounts. Put um, in account number three, uh, put a certain amount of money that you consciously feel like that will be, if everything goes to shit, that is the amount of money that you, um, you call it your parachute, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, you know, everyone's got one. It's like, you know, when you're growing up and like as soon as you, um, your bank balance goes under like five hundred dollars. You freak out, and then you've got other people. And then you've got other people who who live on zero every single week. And you're just like, how do you live? And then you've got other people who go, I've got no money, but they've got twenty thousand dollars in their account. And you're like, <laughs> every everyone's got their own psychological amount of money yeah. that scares them. I guess is probably the word that scares them out of their like out of their wits. Um, so that's account number three. That's your like, oh my god, shit is not going to get much better. And that needs to see it sitting there. And it's never allowed to be touched as far as, you know, like that's how I kind of visualize it anyway. It's never allowed to be touched. The only time it's allowed to be touched is if it's a short-term, I call it like a short-term loan, yeah. um, i.e. let's just say I get a, um, a large batch of beer from overseas and I know I'm going to sell the beer, but I have to pay up front or something like that. Or um, And then I instantly, once everything's back to normal again, I instantly put that money back in again as soon as I can. Um, account number two is probably a little bit simpler. Um, that's kind of like your, your savings account. That's the stuff you're working towards to, you know, if you want to pay yourself a dividend one day or if you want to give yourself a bonus or, and I try and not that it has to be the same amount, but I try and make it the same amount as the number three account. 
And that's just another psychological thing. It means that once you get to it, you can like breathe a sigh of relief um, that you can start to pay yourself or you can start to take some more risks or you can pay for some marketing or whatever it happens to be. And then account number one, and it could be the same amount of money again, or it could be whatever. And that's just like your daily transaction account. And there should always be enough in there to hypothetically cover your stock, your wages, your, your week on, week out. So that means like you've kind of built up a, three psychological barriers um, in place anyway, on top of having the mentality of paying yourself last. You've kind of cemented, in my opinion anyway, you've kind of cemented a psychology of money isn't free. And it's not just just because it's a good week, one week, it doesn't mean it's going to keep going this way. Or um, it's kind of removing the idea of complacency. It's probably the I don't know. It's probably a bit of a cliche of mine. Like it's my cliche, but like don't be don't don't be complacent. I think is probably a weird way of saying that you should always be prepared for you know a bad week, or you should always be prepared for a bad month, or you should always be prepared for an unexpected breakdown of equipment or whatever you want to call it. Um, and you know, and I've probably been caught out once or twice before where I got a bit probably excited and you know, it always seems to happen when I, you know, like if I buy a new cool room, I'm like, cool, I've got some cash and I'll buy a new cool room, um, to help me store more stock or whatever it happens to be. And literally the next week will be the week that something else breaks and you're just like, this is not the week that that's meant to happen. And this is the week that I have, you know what I mean? Like this is the week that I actually have no money. Um, and you have to scramble a bit, but, um, yeah, like I think that's the thing that underpins it all. Like I don't think it's a, and I think it can be applied to anything. I suppose is what I'm trying to get at is it doesn't have to be applied to bar world. It can be applied to any kind of. Uh, I mean, you could apply it to just your everyday life if you really wanted to. But I think it just it builds up a psychology that um, even if your business is doing well, doesn't mean that you can just start to um, shovel the money into your account, so to speak. It needs to have all these um, checks and balances to make sure that everything's safe and. Um, yeah, it's a, it's its own um, organism, and you kind of have to treat it like that. I guess is maybe what I'm getting at. Yeah, I've um, I, th- I think it can definitely translate into sort of any sort of uh, format with you know people in everyday life. I mean, I've as you're as you're rattling off those accounts, I'm just thinking of my own ones that I've got personally, and, and it's very similar. I think I've probably got an extra couple, which is probably too many, but I've got all these bucket, <laughs> buckets that I put money into, and um, yeah. and as you said, like even with the the scenario that you said about you know outlaying this money for a cooler room and then you know you've uh, the next next week you've got something else that breaks down but you've got the experience to know psychologically that you know even though you might have stuffed yourself around you you've still got the mechanism and the tools there to sort of psychologically get yourself through whereas somebody that yeah, hasn't right. gone through that process is probably thinking oh geez like let's let's just throw the towel in now i've got to give up yeah and i think you know probably maybe to extend it in in brief it's kind of like, i think a lot of people have and I shouldn't say a lot of people. I, I think just in my experience, people have um, they have an idea of three backup plans, or even let's just say three. Maybe they don't even have that many, but let's just say they've got three backup plans. I.e., um, I'll work for free for six months. I'll um, my parents will loan me fifty grand if things get in trouble, um, and I've got four events booked that I know will bring money in. Like that could be their like their three things. But let's just say their parents go bankrupt, um, the event cancels, and then all of a sudden, all you've got left is I'm working for free again. Um, so I think you need, and not that I think there's a limit, and I think as time goes on, you do more of it. You, like I've probably got, and I can't list them, but 
um, for any existing business, not for new business, because you can't really do it for a new business, but you try and do it as much as you can, like minimum 10 like different fail-safes, um, whether they're psychological or whether they're um, financial or whether it's um, venue-focused or whatever it is. I mean, it doesn't have to be venue-focused, but find something that will hedge. Like, if you want to call it, it's like a, a hedging, if you want to call it that. You know, if this goes wrong, like some months I'll book um, to some of my staff's um, horror, I'll book, you know, maybe 10 events a month and they freak out and they're like, how are we going to pull up all these 10 events? <laughs> and without fail, four, and without fail, three of them get cancelled or they're delayed or, you know, like it's, but if we didn't do the 10, then we would have ended up with two. So we end up with four and it's like, well, that's just how you get a roll. And some people don't like that. They, tr- they see that as more work or, but if you keep rolling it on, like some of the events that I do, um, it might be, let's just say it's in May. Um, well, I'll actually give you a prime example. So I have, I have four events booked for May um, and then another person called up and they're like, oh, can we do an event at your bar? And I was like, even though I was kind of like umming and ahhing about whether I should do it, I'm probably pushing it, blah, blah. And I kind of like booked it in and then I got the quote back for one of the other events and it was so far beyond what I was prepared to pay. And I was like, well, I can't do that event. Like, it just got, essentially it's going to be more than likely cancelled. That just happened today. Um so it's probably going to be cancelled. So straight off the bat, that event that I thought was going to tip us over is actually now replacing probably that event. Um, I mean, that's just one example. Not everyone can do events, but you need to find your version of whatever that is. Like It's kind of like mini income streams or um, what, is, what is your backup plan to, like, do you have 10 suppliers that will um, extend your credit terms if things get tight or are you one of those people that only pays every 60 days so you've got bad relationships with your suppliers like within reason i try and pay all my accounts either early on time or within at least a designated time frame so if things do get tight or you know cash flow is a bit kind of funny um i can kind of call on a few favors or um you know like i know money's coming in next week so don't worry we'll pay next week but yeah stop calling and stop messaging me kind of thing <laughs> like i just need to yeah do you know what i mean and that happens sometimes as well because a lot of these guys have got automatic um, uh, reminders and invoicing things now, like with the online platforms. And, and they don't, it's not like they're, ha- they're not badgering you, but their platform is badgering them to badger you, which is obviously good for them. Um, but, you know, if you get a funny way of saying it, I used to say it to somebody um, who used to have a very prompt badgering system. And I said, every time I have to reply to your email and every time I have to answer your phone call, that's another 10 minutes I'm not doing something else. Now, times that by, say, 10 different suppliers, and that could be two hours of my day of me just handling um, account inquiries. And so what you should be doing is establishing relationships so you don't have to have um, those conversations. Um, and, you, and you can get back to doing what you should be doing, which is keeping on top of your business. So, Do you, do you look at sort of uh, collaborations with other businesses to sort of increase that sort of concept of having different revenue streams coming in and, and sort of protecting, I guess, the, the back end of the business so you've got other things coming in. Do you sort of branch out and work with other other businesses? Yeah, massively. I mean, it's probably more rife in our industry than most industries because it's very easy to collaborate. It's, um, I can call up a brewery, say, today, and I can tell them I'd like to do X, Y, Z. And as long as I've got a good relationship with them and they're receptive and they're able to, we can work on a collaborative beer, we can work on a collaborative event, um, or even better still, I can just ask them to do a certain beer or I can ask for a certain style and they can have it ready for me 
um, maybe in a couple of months' time or something like that. So, I mean, that's the beer thing, but I'm starting to collaborate more with other venues now as well. Um, once again, talking to somebody today about a collaboration um, between venues. I mean, on paper, we actually look like competitors, but I don't like that as a kind of, as a oh, not as a term. I just think that as long as you're not directly copying each other, then you're not competitors. You can be um, complementary businesses, and even though you're technically offering the same thing, um, you can both benefit. It doesn't have to be this kind of like us against them mentality or, um, and it, within reason, I suppose, to kind of half answer your, a question previously, um, because the industry has grown so much in the last, I would say like the last 18 to 24 months, it's grown exponentially. Um, you know, you're getting a different type of person now. You're actually getting people who are becoming, you know, I'm sure they love the industry, so to speak, but they're becoming competitive and the industry's never been hyper competitive. It's competitive to a point, but I mean, you're getting people now trying to cut other people out of things and you're trying to get, you know, it's really, it, in that sense, the industry has changed. Um, but, you know, like the venue that I'm talking with right now, um, you know, we're going to look at doing a, a collaborative event. We're going to do a collaborative um, beer. Like, we're going to do all these other things. And I think it, there's no... There's no negative or downside to that. I don't think any, any, well, I shouldn't say any collaboration because that's going to potentially lead someone down the wrong path, but I don't see a lot of negatives. Any good collaboration, there are no negatives. It's all positive. It's only if you aren't, if you have some kind of ego and you feel like you're owed something or you feel like you're better or, um, or you, think that you deserve more or well, I don't know, like you've got to kind of go in with a pretty open mind and open heart. Like it might not be a 50, 50 split, but as long as you're up, it doesn't really matter. Um, as long as the other person has integrity and it may not be person, it might be business, um, has integrity, then it shouldn't really matter, I guess. And I mean, even to the point where like, um, not that I've done this, but it's just something that's kind of, kind of crossed my mind, but you know, like there's a barber shop just around the corner and they do, you know, those, you know, very fashion style haircuts, which yeah. change every couple of years, but yeah, hyper fashion haircuts. And I was like, it'd be really nice if we went down there. I haven't done it. So I, you know, I, I actually kind of um, blame myself for this, but anyway, um, but just going down there and going, how would you feel if I um, gave you guys a bunch of beers for cost price? Um, if you give them to your customers and just tell us, tell them where you got the beer from, um, you know, just something like that. So someone's sitting there drinking a beer while they're getting their hair cut. And you got like a form of collaboration where there's no negative. The hairdresser was going to buy the beer anyway. You're giving it to them technically at your cost, so you're not losing. Um, and they, in theory, get a cheaper beer because they're getting it at wholesale prices instead of bottle shop prices. Um, so, I mean, that's a perfect example of like how you could have a win-win collaboration where there's not a single downside to that. Like even if nobody even comes to the bar because of it, um, there's still no downside to it because it's not like it costs me any money. It's not like it costs me any of my ego it didn't cost me anything it was just like a nice gesture um but i mean that's an example of a completely um win-win collaboration so i'm all for collaborations i love them i think there should be more thought out ones i mean you can always look at some of those bigger companies it's like when nike collaborates with person x and you're like that's not a collaboration you just paid that person five million dollars to put their name on the shoe or whatever it is you know what i mean like that's not a collaboration um but yeah, collaboration in a sense that two individuals or two businesses working together for a more positive multiplying outcome, I think is kind of what you should be basing it on. Moving forward now, 
um, obviously on, on few is, is probably the latest, the latest venture. And that's where you're putting all your time into. And, and, uh, for people that are listening, uh, we, we kind of had a couple of kickstarts to get this conversation going because you're mentioning that you're sort of multitasking at the moment. So I guess, you know, where you're at the moment is really sort of focusing on this, this latest expansion. So, uh, yeah, I suppose it's almost linked in back with what we were kind of talking about at the start. Um, I've more or less uh, put on the clock three months, if you want to call it that, um, and I have to psychologically prepare for that because it's like it's a version of going backwards to go forwards. Mm. Um, so that that definitely takes its own version of a toll because um, you 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 know you're working probably twice as much as you normally would, and you're already working twice as much as most people do. Um, so yeah, it's, at this particular point, it's kind of like trying to. Uh, release a Formula One car, but you're not too sure if I've put the right tyres on yet. You know, you're second-guessing a few things, you're adjusting, you're doing all these things, and, you know, the average person will not notice, of course, but I notice, and um, everything's fine. But you, I can't mentally move forward until I know those things are ticked off and done, and, um, you know, like, I, I won't be uh, content with the project until I've uh, finished so to speak. So, I mean, that could take an extra month. It could take two months. It could take three months. It could take, so yeah. So I suppose that's probably where I'm at right now. I mean, the business is more or less open now. Um, and now we're just in that kind of teething period of being open, training up the staff, staff are obviously cutting their teeth, um, getting used to the venue. Um, yeah. And even in that in itself, like there's a version of like, you know, they're asking a lot of questions. What you and you're like, kind of like glazed over because you haven't slept for three nights, um, <laughs> trying to give them, trying to give them an accurate answer. But at the same time, you have to like tick yourself real quickly because you, you know that the quicker the, the as long as you're concise and clear, and the quicker you are at doing it, um, the quicker you can get back to uh, not working. I guess is the is the weird way of saying it because the longer it takes for your staff to train up, the longer you have to keep doing it. So very true. Well, yeah. ex- exciting times and uh, no doubt daunting, but uh, but you've definitely done it uh, in different versions in the past. So um, all the best with uh, with the next couple of months, the next two or three months, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, seeing where it all goes. And we'll we'll do that chat in ten years as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to learn more about Aaron from Bitter Few, you can click through to the show notes on your preferred podcast player. Or you can head over to selfstarter.com.au where you can get more details about our guest as well as my key takeaways. Number one, how long could you work for free? Now, preparation is key here. It's not just about the financials, but it's also the psychological groundwork that's needed before you dive into a business. Aaron's made a really good rule when commencing a business that he does not pay himself for the first three months. This involves a lot of preparation, but it sets up expectations and increases the likelihood of success where money can be reinvested back into the business in those early months. It ensures that it's set up for the long term. The temptation to pay yourself as the dollars start rolling in will be really high, but preparing yourself and getting clear on your goals before you dive in will set you up for success. Number two, financially disciplined. We all need to take our financial education more seriously. And for many of us growing up, we're often not taught about how to be financially smart. Aaron shares how he sets up his own accounts so that he has clarity and discipline when it comes to the management of his money. Accounts allocated to things such as emergencies, savings and personal goals, and everyday transactions ensures that you can stay on track and steer clear of those reckless decisions. Number three, exclusivity. 
The nature of your business will determine the appropriate approach. However, an element of exclusivity to your business or product can attract a demand and tribal loyalty that will have your customers passionately supporting you. In Aaron's case, he rejected the mainstream marketing option and took on a word of mouth approach for those in the know. He made sure that people who did come in had that personal touch and felt like they were part of something really special. Number four, win-win collaborations. Collaboration possibilities are endless. However, you should never begin with profit in mind. Focus initially on covering costs rather than chasing dollars. Aaron shared this great idea of cost price beers to his local barber so they could tell their customers where the beers came from and ultimately drive traffic back to the bar. Bid a few wins. The barbershop wins because they get cheap beer and improve their customer experience. And the customer, of course, wins. Everyone's a winner. And that's it. We're done. To learn more about this episode and previous ones, you can go over to selfstarter.com.au. If you want to have a squiz at my other podcast, being the Andy Social Podcast or my band Lord or anything else that's happening in my world, you can go over to andydowling.net. Really looking forward to having you back for the next episode of Self Starter. Larry. Larry, please.